Galatians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, Galatians chapter 4. I don't know about you, but I, I want the kind of a faith that's a no turning back kind of faith. Um, Mitchell, come on up here. Come on. I asked him if he would do something for me, and he was like, but I want James to do it. <laughs> and I said, well, well, buddy, do you are you willing to do it? And he said, yeah, sure. So here's what I want you to do, okay? All you got to do, this is easy, easy stuff. All you got to do is walk to that wall. Okay, you ready? All right, and then come back, of course. Okay, you ready? Go. Easy stuff, right? Yeah, all right, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. I want you to do one other thing for me, okay? All right. One more, one more time. He's going to try to do this, okay? You ready? You ready? All right, go. <laughs> All right, now, yeah, yeah, keep looking at that wall. <laughs> Not exactly what I wanted, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Sit down. Okay, okay. So he hit the wall. That's good, right? But did you notice there was something different about the second time than the first? Did you notice that as he started getting further away from me, he started drifting a little bit to the side, and then he kind of ran into the wall instead of like before he knew where it was, everything? What the difference was, was he was looking back. The tendency is, if you're going forward and you turn your head to the side, your body is going to start to move in the direction that you're looking. This is why with, when you learn how to ice skate, for those of you who have ever ice skated before and somebody's taught you, they've taught you, look where you want to go, right? No, they should have. Look where you want to go. The reason is, is because your body will naturally take you where you look. This is why when you're driving and they teach you, Keep your eyes on the road, because if you look over there, what's going to happen? You're going to turn the wheel that way. If you look over there, you're going to turn the wheel that way. We tend to go where we're looking. That's just the natural human tendency. And sometimes that can be pretty hard to fight. If you ever watch a toddler, toddlers are really fun to watch, just because they're toddlers. But when they're walking, they will be looking all around and you can watch them meander in their walking to the point where they start running into stuff and, and, and they don't know, they, get, they lose their balance and everything. It's because they're looking all over the place. They're not focusing on one thing and going toward that one thing. That's what we are as humans. We are these type of people that where we are looking is where we're going to end up going. Even if, it's, even if we know we shouldn't be going there. If we're looking there, we'll go there. If we're looking there, we'll turn toward that. That's the way God made us. And that's why it's so important for us to have a kind of faith that doesn't turn back. When Jesus was walking around in Luke chapter 9, he's talking to different folks, and one guy comes up to him and says, I'll go with you wherever you want me to go. And he says, but I, I don't even have, foxes have dens, birds have nests, I don't even have a home for you. 
I can't even give you somewhere to lay your head down at night. He goes up to another guy. He says, follow me. Those those persuasive words that he used on the disciples where the gospels say immediately they got up and followed. Immediately they dropped their nets and they followed him. But this guy says, well, let me go bury my father first. The implication is he's not dead yet. (laughs) That, you know, I've got family responsibilities I've got to do. So let my father die, then I can wrap all that up and then I can come to you. When in reality, we all know that responsibilities do not lessen. Who do you think would be taking care of the farm when father was gone? That guy. He won't have less responsibilities. He'll have more. But so often we say to God, well, God, when it's a more convenient time. God, right now, it's just a bad season of life. But eventually, eventually, I'm going to get to the place where I can X. And if you ever, if you know anything, you know that eventually doesn't come Because it never becomes a better time. Not until God puts you flat on your back and you realize, oh, buddy, I've been going about this all wrong. Um, So so Jesus is like, let the dead bury their dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. We don't know what happened to these guys. We don't know if they really did follow through with Christ or not. The assumption is not, but it's possible they may have. A third guy comes up to Jesus. Jesus comes up to him. And, and he says, I, I'm, I'm, willing, I'm willing to come with you, but let me just go say goodbye. I, I'm not going to bury my father. I, you know, I, know, I, I know this is the right time, but let me at least say goodbye. And then Jesus makes this statement, Luke 9, 62. No man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if you know anything about plowing, but you got to look forward when you're plowing. You can't look back. What happens when you look back? You don't plow straight. It says no one that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for God's kingdom. That's a pretty remarkable statement. And I think that ought to challenge us to ask the question, do we have the looking back kind of a faith? The kind of faith that puts our hand to the plow and looks back and misses all those things that were before. Paul's talking to a Galatian church who has started to look back. Now, in some ways, they're they're looking back to a past that they never had. Most of them, if not all of them, are Gentiles. But they're looking back on the law as though that's the way to be. What, what, what they're looking back as though, as though that's God's way and now I have to go back to that. Some of them are, are looking back at other things. They're looking back to the way they used to live. They're looking back to the lifestyle they used to have. And Paul addresses that. Galatians chapter 4. Look with me at verse 8. Formally. This is the way things used to be. Paul likes contrasting. He likes the before and after picture. We've talked about the before and after of faith. How before you came to faith, you were under the law and the law did these different things. But now, because you have put faith in Christ, things are different. Paul likes to juxtapose those because it's in the before and after that we see the remarkable difference. The other day, I saw two women. They were twins. One of them had had a dramatic change 
in their life over the last year or so. The other one had not. And boy, you could tell with them side by side. When they're side by side, when you see the before and after side by side, the difference becomes so much more stark. If you're watching the change happen incrementally, you can tell there's change, but you don't really know quite how much. But when you see before and after side by side, man, that really shows you. And when I saw these twins, I saw the difference. And boy, it was astounding. Y'all, formally, when you did not know God, how does he describe their life before God? You were enslaved. Remember last week we were talking about liberty? We were talking about Christian freedom and the fact that freedom is not just I can do whatever I want. Freedom is not being enslaved. He said, before you knew God, you were enslaved. You were trapped. You were captured. You were in shackles and chains. To what? To those that by nature are not gods. Some of them may have been chained up by pride. I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it. It's my way or the highway. Some must have been shackled by pleasure. Lusting after whatever it is, it doesn't matter whether it's some sort of physical pleasure, whether it's some sort of mental pleasure or some sort of emotional pleasure, that makes no difference. They're chasing after it as though that is where their meaning comes from. Some people are shackled by the next high, by the next thrill. Just give me something to make me feel alive. Some people are just as captured by profit. I've got to make more. I've got to do more. I've got to have more benefit. I've got to have a bigger, a better, a nicer. Whatever it is, you think, well, well, I don't have enough money in my bank account to worry about that. Do you realize that the poorest people in this country are filthy rich compared to the rest of the world? I did it one time. I went on a website that ranks you in terms of percentages. How much of the world are you richer than? And I was working, I put in just my income. I think I was a teller at the time. Bank tellers are not filthy rich by most standards. I was richer than almost nine out of 10 people in the world. It was like 87, 88%, I think, if I remember right. Y'all, we are filthy rich. Some of us more filthy than others. But we are. And some of us are enslaved to that. Oh, it's not good enough that we have this. We have to have that. And the cycle continues and we're chained up. We're shackled by whatever profit may be motivating us, whatever benefit we may be seeking after. Some of us are slaves to wrath. Have you ever noticed that some people are just angry all the time? You know why they're angry all the time? They're enslaved. Some of us are enslaved to a wrath that will not let us be happy for someone else's success, that will not allow us to take pleasure in someone else's joy, that will not allow us 
to love someone else because we are so angry. We are so such, we have such a victim mindset that nobody can succeed around us because we are too mad at them. We talked about uh, last week. uh, Was it last week or the week before? I can't remember. All my weeks are running together. Y'all, it's been a a rough week this week. We have have strep all over the place in my house. Most of us are better. (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) We're medicated. We're fine. But um, it's really torn through our house. And so, yeah, it's been a rough week. But when I preached from Ezekiel 35, I think it was two weeks ago now that I think about it. Sunday night, two weeks ago. And I preached about the condemnation, the judgment that God was passing on the nation of Edom. Remember what I told you was the key part of that story? It's the unforgiveness. They would not forgive Israel. Though Esau had forgiven Jacob, their descendants were still fighting each other because they wouldn't forgive. They held on to the grudge for so long that it led to Edom's destruction. And y'all, some of us are enslaved to a wrath that will spell our doom too. You see, there are a great deal of people who are chained up, shackled by something that doesn't even deserve to be served. And I'm going to ask you today, is that you? Are you enslaved to something that's not by nature even a god? something that doesn't even deserve to be worshipped? Are you serving a master that doesn't even deserve to be a master? It's time to clear the stage. It's time to wipe all those things away. I'm not saying you do that on your own. You just put your feet to the floor and put put the rubber on the road and, and work hard and You can defeat sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you need to give those things up to God. You need to give yourself up to God. Because the fact is he has paid the price to redeem you and all you got to do, all you got to do is accept. And if you can't do that, then you will never know freedom. What was it like before you knew God? You were enslaved. Many of you can testify to that. You can remember the slavery. Perhaps for you it took a different kind of form than what I've talked about, but you know exactly what I mean. You know that before Christ you were enslaved to something. Your life was meaningless. Verse 9, but now. Oh, what great words. I love it when when it's so simple that you almost miss it. But now, and I'm sorry, there's a lot of words in this verse. So the text is kind of small. I hope you can read that. But now that you have come to know God, now that you have made the transition from someone who does not know God to someone who knows God. No, no, wait, not just knows God, but more emphatically is known by God. That rather there is not a denial. He's not saying you really don't know God. God just knows you. What he's saying is no, no, even more importantly than you knowing God is that God knows you. Do you remember when Jesus is talking about those who follow him and those who don't follow him and how in that day there will be many that say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these great works in your name? What's he tell them? 
Depart from me. I never knew you. You see, part of the problem, part of the problem is some of us don't know God and aren't known by God. Now, this no is not intellectual. It is experiential. God knows you. You have searched me and you know me, the psalmist says. But many of us, it's an intellectual no. It's not an experiential no. Has there ever been a time when you've actually come to know Christ Jesus? When you have stood face to face before the Savior and related with him, not just knew about him, not just heard stories about him, What Job says, Job throughout the book is arguing with his three friends over this idea of why he's being punished. And Job's saying, I'm not, I haven't sinned. And the friends are saying, you're sinned, just repent of your sin and I'll be over with. And toward the end of the book, finally, God comes to Job. And when God comes to Job, Job just says, my ears have heard of you old, but now my eyes have seen you. Now I know you. Has there been a time when you've come to know God? When you've experienced Him? Not just heard, but shared life with Him. But now you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back? How can you look back? Now that you've gotten your hand on the plow, how can you look back? Look back to what? Weak, worthless, elementary principles of the world. How can you look back to the junk that didn't, wasn't even effective? Not only that, whose slaves you want to be once more? How, how can you look back? How can you allow yourself to go back to the worthless? To the weak? How can you look back at the things that were ineffective? Somebody I know complains every time they go to a certain place. It doesn't get done right. They go for a service and it doesn't get done right. And then they keep going back to that same place. Why are you keep going back? Stop it. (laughs) Go somewhere else. Why do you keep looking back at the things that aren't working? The things that you know didn't work. Why do you want to be that slave again? It's for freedom Christ has set us free. Be free! Look at verse 10. You observe observe days and months and seasons and years. Not only are they going back to the weak and ineffective things, they're doing the great observances, but completely devoid of meaning. You know, this was part of the problem. In Malachi chapter 1, God is just, he's upset. They're bringing him sacrifices. And you know what they're bringing? They're not bringing good sacrifices. They're bringing the weak and the lame. They're bringing the the ones that have blemishes on them, the ones that are not fit. He He says, offer that to your governor, see if he takes it. You wouldn't pay that in tax. 
You're going to bring it to me as a sacrifice? Listen to what he says in Malachi 1.10. Oh, that you were, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. Just, just stop it. Just stop. That you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. Skip down to Amos 5. Amos, same problem in Amos' day. Okay, Malachi is after the exile. We think, oh, the exile solved all of the Hebrews' problems. They're all, now, now they have turned away from all that bad worship stuff. No, they hadn't. They were worshiping God, but they were doing a pitiful job of it. In Amos' day, Amos is preaching some 140 years before this, before the fall of Israel. Amos is in the northern kingdom, somewhere around 740. So it's about, well, it's close to 200 years before Malachi was preaching. A little bit more than 200. I hate, this is God talking, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. What was their problem? Well, they were just worshiping false gods. Even if you're offering a good sacrifice, even if you're offering something that, that meets the requirements, but your heart is not in it, God says, forget it. Don't even bother. I want everything. He deserves everything. And the fact is that they're observing these days and these months, these seasons, these years. They're going feast after feast after feast, doing offering after offering after offering, and none of it makes any difference. Do you know why? Because their hearts are far from God. I love your works, he tells the Ephesian church in, Re in Revelation. I love your works. You're doing all kinds of wonderful things, but you've left your first love. See the problem? It ain't about what we're doing whose we are and when you look back you're not gods because when you're looking back you're devoted to whatever's back there that's why I want a no turning back kind of faith I want a faith that's not going to look back at the junk that I've left behind the junk that God has rescued me from you don't hear the psalmist saying you picked me up from the miry clay and set my feet on the rock. I can't wait to get back in the clay again. No, now that he's got a solid foot and he's going to stand. Y'all, we can't be looking back. He finally says in verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. No turning back means abandoning the old life. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. If you are going to follow Christ with a no turning back kind of faith, you've got to get rid of the junk that used to be. We can't hold on to it anymore. 
There's different ways that people have tried to express this. When I was a youth, we had a bonfire sometimes, a couple times, and we brought old items, items that represented the old life. One girl brought a Ouija board. Youth pastor joked that he was he he was kind of afraid to throw that one in the fire just because <laughs> what might happen when it goes in. She had left the life of occult practices to follow Christ. And watching that Ouija board burn in that fire cemented that idea that there's no turning back. You can't go back to that. It's gone. It needs to be gone. I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing back there worth holding on to anyway. Whether it's Ouija boards or whether it's anger or whether it's pride or whether it's jealousy or whatever it might be. Maybe there's a destructive relationship that's back there and you just, just need to drop it. No, that does not include your kids. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> man, if it weren't for these kids, I would, no, no. There's some, there's some things that are back there and I'm afraid that sometimes we want to go back and we want to grab those things back because they're comfortable and because it's, it's, it seems kind of lonely on this road this narrow path that we walk. And I want you to know something. It ain't worth it. Whatever it is, it ain't worth it. Paul turns in chapter 4, verse 12, and he starts to talk about a second side of this no turning back kind of faith. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. For I'm also become as you are. This is the one that says that I've become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. What he's saying is I'm willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to faith in Christ. And now he's telling them, just like I do, you, you need to follow my example. You need to become like me. Don't you remember when I came, I was like you? Don't you remember me setting the example for you? You need to follow that example. Now that brings up another question. Are we living the kind of faith that no turning back kind of faith that other people can look at and say, man, that's what I need to be doing. That's the model right there. I need to be walking in his footsteps. I need to be following her example. Is that our kind of faith? Or is our kind of faith the one of do as I say, not as I do? Is our kind of faith the kind of faith that says, well, I make a lot of mistakes. Don't pay any attention to me. Just watch the Savior. Paul was able to stand and say, be like me. That's the kind of faith I want. I want the kind of faith that can tell my sons and my daughter, be like me. Watch what I do. Let me show you how to live with God. Let me show you how to pray. Let me show you how to read the Bible. Let me show you how to live this Christian life. Is that our kind of faith? Paul says, you be like me. Become as I am, for I am also become as you are. You did me no wrong, verse 13. You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. We don't know exactly what the problem was, but something happened in Paul's life physically that he was unable to go on from Galatia somewhere else. We do know a couple of things. We know that there was something that kept harassing Paul, some kind of physical problem that kept coming up. 
He says in one of his books that I tried, I prayed for it three separate times, and each time God said no, I prayed for it, God said no, I prayed for it, God said no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So maybe this is one of those flare-ups. Maybe this is one of those times where whatever is bothering Paul bothered him to such an extent that he could not travel from Galatia, so he stayed put. And what did he do when he stays put? He preaches the gospel. When he gets put somewhere and he can't move, he starts preaching. When he's chained to a Roman guard for day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you know what he does? He gets the guards saved. He preaches the gospel to them. He gets thrown in a jail. Great, I can preach to more guards at a time. Every opportunity he's good. He's preaching the gospel. And here is an opportunity clothed in physical ailment to preach the gospel. I went to saw Mary Hobby yesterday. And she is in a, um, she's in a recovery facility in Montgomery. And I prayed for her. And when I prayed for her, I prayed that her and her family would have a witness with the people around them. She's got another Mary that just moved in the room yesterday. So you know what? I want, I, want her, I want her and her family to be sharing good news with them. I want them to be sharing with nurses that are taking care of them, with folks that are doing the physical therapy. I want them to be sharing with the people around them, with family members that are coming to visit that roommate. You know why? Because it's a perfect opportunity. I mean, the one, the one lady's in a bed. She can't go anywhere. <laughs> Family's not going to go anywhere. Tell them the gospel. Y'all, y'all, if we look at these things, instead of looking at them as ailments and instead of looking at them as physical problems, if we look at them as opportunities to meet new people and share the gospel, that's a Paul kind of a mindset. And that's the kind of mindset that can stand and say, follow me. Do what I do. Here, follow my example. Become like me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the kind of faith Paul has. Verse 14 Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but treated me as an angel of God in Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying? You had every reason, you had every reason to be mad at me, every reason to despise me, and you didn't. You loved me. You treated me you treated me well when I needed you. This time he does the after before the before. I, 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 it makes me think of Matthew chapter 25. He separates the sheep from the goats. He separates the righteous from the wicked. And, and, and those on his right, he says, come on in. When I was hungry, you clothed me. When I was or when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you took care of me. When did we see you like that, Lord? When did we see you hungry or, or naked or, or sick or whatever? When did we see you like that? And he says, Matthew 25, 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, whatever you did to the least of these, you did for me. That's what they're doing. They're doing for the least of these. They're doing for someone who is sick and they're caring for him. They're loving him 
back to health. Maybe some of them are giving so that he will have the money that he needs for the treatments that are required. Some, maybe some of them are offering food. They're coming by and they're bringing food so that he has stuff to eat, to have sustenance and, and to, to build up his strength. Maybe some of them are watching for him and caring for him, helping him go from, from one place to another. I don't know the nature of the illness, but it could have been where Paul was bedridden for a time. And somebody is helping him get out of bed and go to some places. Somebody's helping him by bringing him the supplies that he needs. Somebody's helping him by just encouraging him, spending time with him. But whatever the case is, they're doing for the least of these. And that's what makes the after so striking compared to the before because before, this is what you're doing. Now, Verse 16. Verse 15, excuse me. What then has become of your blessedness? For I tested you, thought of you that if possible you would have guarded out your eyes and given them to me whatever it took you would have done for me. But verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Has all that changed? It's because, it's because I've told you what the truth is. See, it was all good before. What's changed? What's changed? I'll tell you what's changed. Look back. I wish that cross wasn't back there. I'm not saying the cross is bad. Every time I look back, I'm like, I I probably shouldn't be identifying that as bad. (laughs) What's changed is that they look back. It's interesting. There's this scriptural pattern. It's in Genesis 3. Eve, before she takes the food, she looks at it. She sees that it's good. That it's profitable. And that it's tempting. She takes a good long look at it. The problem with looking back is that when you look back, you start to want it. That's that inch that gives the devil a mile. Don't look back. Don't look back. He then compares another comparison, verse 14. They make much of you. He's talking about the Judaizers here. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made... Much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, Mo. Basically, he's saying here, you know, all they're after is for their own good. All they're after is for their own self-aggrandizement. They just want to make themselves bigger and more important at your expense. They're not doing this for your good. They're doing it for their own good. But then look at Paul's passion. Verse 19, my dear children. My dear children. My little children. What are you saying here? It's like you take a small kid in your arms and you, and you say, oh, precious child. Your heart just goes out to that kid. That's how Paul thinks of them. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You don't go through the pain of childbirth for someone and not love them. At least you shouldn't. 
That's a really messed up person. They cannot love a child after going through a childbirth. After going through all that effort to get that child in their arms that can look at that baby and say, I don't want this. That is messed up. And it's not the way God designed it. My wife um, with one of our children it took her a while to come around to the idea of having another child. And as we moved along, she got more and more accustomed. And by the time the baby was born, you couldn't pry that baby out of mama's hands. I mean, it was just—it was everything to her. I tried. She she wouldn't let me. She kept holding her tight. Just another minute. You know, when you've gone through that much, there's a deep, deep passion. Paul says, I've gone through so much for you. Verse 20, I wish I could be present with you. I wish I could just be there. So you could hear the, the, the love in my voice. Letters don't do that. If you send emails, you know emails are even worse. You can't get emotion through the screen. It's hard enough to get it through the pen. He says, I just wish I could be there. And change my tone for I'm perplexed. I, I just don't know what to do. And it leads me that no turning back is not just abandoning the old way of life. No turning back means adopting the new life. It's not just getting rid of what's behind. It's going full on to what's ahead. You cannot turn back. You cannot let that take you over again. But the only way you're going to get away from that is if you go in the new direction. Repentance means two things. It means turning away and going in a new direction. And you've got to do both. You can't just stand there with your back to what used to be. You've got to move forward. You've got to press on. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions. First of all, do you have this new kind of life? Has there ever been a time when you were headed in sin, but you stopped and you turned and you started in a new direction? That you turned away from the sinfulness that marked your life and you turned to Christ in trust, in obedience, in faith to Him and have set your course on a new way of life? Do you have that? Have you done that? If not, today is that day. Today is the day that God is calling you. Then secondly, if you have that new kind of life, what are you looking back for? Why are you looking back there? There's nothing valuable back there. You press on and you have a no turning back kind of a faith. The kind of faith that says that is done. I don't need it anymore. I'm headed in a new way. 
keeping my eyes focused straight ahead. Pressing on. Paul's biggest fear was that he would run the race and be disqualified. That he wouldn't finish strong. That he would trip up and fall. That he'd make a mistake. That he'd turn back. That's his biggest fear. And his second biggest fear was that they would do the same thing. Y'all, I'm worried. I'm worried that we, too, have that same, have that same problem. And that we just turn back and we lose everything that God is doing in us. Because we're too worried about what's back there. And not worried enough about where God is taking us. Don't turn back. Finish the race. I'm going to be up here at the front. If you need to finish that race in a certain way, maybe it's that you haven't even started that race. You're still enslaved to those weak and worthless principles that you're, you're still slave, chained by those things that aren't even gods and yet you're serving them because you didn't know if there was freedom to be had in Christ, I would love to help you know that. If, if you already have, and you need to commit to God that you're not going to turn back, I'd love to pray with you. And I'd love to help you keep your eyes focused. Focused ahead on Christ. You come while we sing this song. I have a feeling I know which one. Yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> I almost set it up, then I have you decided to follow Jesus? If you have, no turning back. No turning back. Uh-huh.